Hey, welcome everybody. This is the State of the CIO, where we talk with America's top IT leaders about the changing role of technology in the C-suite. I'm your host, Dan Kelly. Hey everybody, Dan Kelly here with State of the CIO podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day today. We've got an excellent guest. His name is Dave Burrell. Uh, hey Dave, how you doing? Good. How are you? Good, good. Dave is the managing director of IT's about what? Not it's about what, but IT's about what? We were joking before we started recording. And you've got quite a diverse background and history. Could you give the audience a quick overview of your background and kind of how you got to where you are now? Although that kind of reminds me of the uh, Grateful Dead, what a long, strange trip it's been. I've got a weird background, certainly, you know, very eclectic. I started off as a young, stupid individual thinking I wanted to be an academic and was working on a PhD in organization and systems design. Then had the first great epiphany in my life that abject poverty sucks. So after doing all the coursework to get the doctorate out of the way, I realized I had five more years of indentured servitude to finish a dissertation and didn't want anything to do with that. So wound up bailing, went to Pricewaterhouse, had offers at Arthur Anderson and PW. I went there because I wanted to get a mechanics feel for how IT systems and how business systems work. And one of the things that had been suggested to me, the guy that was the chairman of my department and became a very close mentor was the guy that became the first chief learning officer in the world for Jack Welch at GE. And he'd made the suggestion to me, he said, if you're going to go down this route, he said, go to one of the big eight at the time, get certified as a CPA so that you understand how to run the process and what, how they all work and how they all come together, and then jump to the consulting practice. So that's exactly what I tried to do. And Arthur Anderson wanted me to go right to Illinois and learn COBOL programming for six months, but Pricewaterhouse would allow me to get certified and then jump to the consulting practice. So that's what I did. Wound up leaving there after about three and a half, almost four years, because I was billing 100 hours a week and traveling incessantly, which is just no good way to start a family, which is where I was. Joined a high-tech startup that at that point was on a run rate of about $7 million. Left them four years and four months later at 275 May. I reported directly to the CEO, chairman, and CFO and was kind of the fixer for the organization. So any special projects that I had to do or that had to be done, I got them, which was a great job. It was pretty entertaining. Certainly learned a lot. Did the IPO for that. Actually wrote the S1 for that offering, supported the roadshow, launched a couple of different product lines. Wound up developing some consulting methodologies that I started being asked to speak on around the US. And it got to the point where I was making more money moonlighting than it was in my day job. So left there, joined a consulting practice, mostly focused in BI and enterprise systems, largely in healthcare. Did that for a few years. The last big job with that was the merger of MetLife and Travelers when they carved together their healthcare businesses in 1994 and 95, and then spun it out as a separate organization. In 95, raised a couple million dollars in angel funding and started an analytics software company that, unbeknownst to us at the time, was on the absolute bleeding edge of AI and machine learning, data segmentation, things like that. When we were doing it, nobody had ever seen anything like it. So we grew that business, got a fair amount of notoriety from it. We had been put up for, and I didn't even know this was happening when it was happening, but we had told Hewitt Packard's Consumer Products Division which was at the time about a $10 billion a year division, which laser jets to put on which staples shelves or Office Max shelves so they didn't stock out. 
And at that point, nobody done anything like that. So when we put our solution in place, which took us all about a week to do, they started dropping through about $20 million a month to increase revenue, which was fairly impressive. So based upon that, Hewitt-Packard was our case study. Ernst & Young nominated us, and this is a global competition that the Smithsonian and Computer World brand called Search for Future Heroes. And out of 3,700 global nominees, we were one of the 10 winners. And then 2000 hit, then the dot-com bubble burst and 9-11 happened and software sales in 2001 were half of what they'd been in 2000 and 2002 was half of what they'd been in 2001. So it was a tough time to be in tech. Wound up selling the company to another publicly traded company, the Trizetto Group. I ran their data warehousing and BI practice nationally. Left them after about 15, 16 months. Floated for a little bit, then wound up as the CIO of another early stage startup that we sold to Western Digital in 09. Looked around again, independent consulting for a while, then did a roll up as a CIO for Blackstone, where we bought 40 companies, glued them all together in one platform, and then released it. And the last several years, I've just been working with early stage venture and private equity funds, kind of like an in house consultant to those groups, which sort of leads us to where we are now. We kept seeing the same problems pop up over and over and over again. And I finally got sick of it and decided to try and do something about it, <laughs> which leads us to where we are today. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> what is it you say you do here, Dave? <laughs> it starts with a burr up my butt. Let's put it that way, where you're under the saddle if we're being more politically correct. Something like 70% of all IT projects fail which is appalling in and of itself. But the good news is, is that 70% isn't quite as bad as it initially sounds. Only 20% are complete smoking craters, total disasters, right? Where you <laughs> flush everything down the toilet, fire everybody and start all over again. 50% just have, as an accountant would say, some material level of failure. So they're 30 to 300% over budget behind schedule or, or under deliver. The IT departments have a very nasty habit of being blind to all of those initial parameters, like, we got it done, it was successful, yeah, $30 million behind schedule and three years late, and it only does one-tenth of what you originally promised, but you know, it's, it's funny, business people- but we delivered all milestones. But we delivered <laughs> all the milestones, it's all good. So it's just like- No ROI, but I don't care, I figured out my milestone. <laughs> not my problem. <laughs> it's the darndest thing, because business people look at the IT, they're like, are you joking? You really think this is a success? But yeah, they tend not to get that. And I'm speaking as one of them. I'm a guy that's been a CIO a couple of times. So I've worn just about every hat at the party and I can relate to these different perspectives of the different members. But yeah, that's one that's always got me. But the more I started looking at this issue, the more it just drove me nuts. Because if a project's over a million bucks, the odds of failure jump by 50%. So you think about this, that means for a million dollar IT project, the odds of failure are one out of three, and that's smoking crater failure. The odds of just getting some material level of failure, some significant way behind schedule, way over budget, way under deliver, is almost two out of three. And the odds of genuine success, even with about a 15, 20% fudge factor, fall to about one out of 20. So to put all of that into very stark context, playing Russian roulette with five out of six bullets in the gun has got better odds of success than running a large IT project. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I think you'd have to be out of your freaking mind to play Russian roulette to begin with, let alone to play it with five out of six bullets in the revolver. And yet we blindly sign up for this 
on a daily basis and not think twice about it. So that's all bad enough. Then the next piece of the exercise was beginning to discover how much this stuff cost. And it's about half a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. alone, which is stunning. The IEEE has done a lot of research on this, and they found that half of all software professionals' time, half of it, is spent remediating stuff that should have been done right the first time. So any other profession where you had to spend half your time fixing the junk that you screwed up up front because you didn't take the time to do it right, you'd pretty much be fired over it, which leads into a whole other element of the conversation. There is a reason why the tenure of our CIOs and VPs of IT is about half that of every other executive in the ranks. We're not turning over voluntarily. (laughs) (laughs) I think I can hear the audience asking, where's Dave getting this data from? Is it something that his firm compiled or is it from a larger association? Is it from that IEEE? It's from IEEE. PMI, McKinsey, Booz Allen, Pricewaterhouse, Gartner, Gallup, Oxford University. Actually, Oxford and McKinsey is something I didn't even mention. They ran a study on the failure rates of these large million-dollar-plus IT projects. And what they found is that if a project's over a million bucks, the odds of it going so badly that it literally endangers the existence of the enterprise are about one out of six. Mm. So you know, just back to your normal round of playing Russian roulette. Yeah, I'm sure it gets worse depending on certain industries as well. So what are the key motivators for these failures? Talk to me a little bit about the findings, because I can hear the CIOs listening to this podcast saying, "Okay, I don't want to be one of these guys. (laughs) I don't want to share this podcast episode with anybody in the business. So it's kind of a competitive advantage is what you're suggesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the one thing that I should have said, too, that I didn't is one of the things that stunned me as I started doing the research on this. At first, when I was digging into it, it was just trying to validate my own understanding. I mean, I couldn't believe it was really this bad, but I just wanted to see what the research said. And for all of the people that I just rattled off, the thing that struck me is the near unanimous consensus from all of them regarding not only the failure rates, but the cost and the cause. And if you distill down all of the causes that everybody identifies in the list, and PMI has done a really pretty good job of this, so is IAAA. There's a few other scholarly articles that point to it as well. Certainly, the stuff out of Oxford University helps with this. But 75%, so three out of four of all of these project failures are effectively attributable to one reason alone. And the reason is the fact that what the business is really trying to do is never fully communicated to the IT department. The IT department doesn't get a firm grasp on what it is that the business needs, what the objectives are. And it's, it's critical. And that's a little bit of why our name is what it is. It's what they're trying to do, not how they're trying to do it. Business never fully articulates what their objectives are. And we tend to encourage people not to focus on what the process is now or what you think the process is going to be. Because the process can always change, but what it is that you're trying to do if you're an established company is usually relatively consistent. It doesn't change that much. Yeah, we talk about this concept of business partnering, if you will, quite a bit on the show uh, with various guests. You're stating it as if the business doesn't tell IT what it wants. Sometimes I hear the same commentary just on the other side of the table, if you will, where IT doesn't ask the business what it really needs versus just assuming they know what it needs, like they're running the business. Could you talk to me a little bit about that? So I spent the first 25 years of my career believing what I've been taught in school, 
huge mistake right off the bat, right? <laughs> Never listen to an economist because the economist argument is that human beings are rational actors, they're control of their emotions, their thoughts, their behaviors, and they make decisions based on the best available information. Well, it turns out that that's complete crap. That's nothing close to the truth. And there were a couple of Israeli psychologists in the 1960s, guys named Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky, that first began asking questions about the assumptions that economists were just blithely assigning to their models. Well, what they didn't bother to talk about at that point, what the economists didn't bother to talk about, is that the reason that they were making these assumptions is because those assumptions had to be there for their models to work. If you took those assumptions away, everything fell apart. So I was working with an executive, the guy that was the CEO of a startup, the last place that I was formally employed as a CIO. And he was trying to put in place a pipeline management system, which was fairly robust. And he'd hired this local vendor, Microsoft FAR, to come in and come up with a quick and dirty solution. And the vendor promised to do it in about a month for $20,000. Well, seven months later, $120,000 spent with absolutely nothing to show for it. The uh, project was completely dead in the water. Everybody's frustrated. The business is yelling and screaming. The CEO was just livid at the vendor, thinking that the guy was a crook or incompetent. I mean, you've heard all of these statements before. And he's venting to me one day. We were at lunch, and he was just belly aching about this guy. And he said, look, you've been in this space. You know, what would you do? I said, well, the first thing I would do is... Did anybody ever sit down and make sure that what he's trying to build is in fact what you want him to build? And it seemed like kind of a logical place to begin for me. And he said, well, we talked about it. And I said, no, no, no. Talking doesn't cut it. Everybody's mind's eyes different. So if you don't get it down on paper, if you don't document the workflow and the roll-up that he's trying to do, and if you're not able to look at it and dissect it and disagree with it, edit it and clean it up, you don't really have agreement. So he said, well, no, we didn't do that. So go back and talk to the guy. So I did. Spent two hours with the vendor, literally two hours, coming up with things that should have been done right out of the gate. And by the way, I'm building up to blaming both sides for this problem. It's not just yeah. one way or the other. So the vendor had never done this. Inside of two hours, I documented his workflow and I documented his roll-up and just simple crude diagrams done on, it was either Physio or Excel, I can't remember which now. But armed with that, I went back and met with the CEO. We had lunch and I did do one thing right. I made sure to get the guy out of the office so that he wouldn't be distracted. And I put these two maps in front of him and said, are these accurate? This is what he thinks you want him to build. And he looked at both and he goes, yeah, those are right. That's exactly what I wanted him to do. I said, okay, great. Now, one thing came up when I was talking to the vendor. He said he's got this issue. He doesn't know how to deal with corporate accounts versus regional accounts. And just as an illustration, I said, can you show me on this one roll-up how you would deal with these two different accounts? And he studies it for a second and he comes back and says, I can't, it's not on here. So, oh, so this isn't accurate after all. You didn't tell him everything he needed to know. So four hours later, we wind up with this diagram that is immensely more complicated and completely different than the original diagram that I had drawn. But we got to the bottom of it. We knew what it was that he was trying to build. And at the end of that, I kind of looked over at the CEO. And again, this guy's a friend of mine, so I could be fairly candid with him. I said, you dumb SOB. <laughs> I said, You've got nobody to blame but yourself. You told him you needed this, but you need that. And they're completely different. I said, I don't have any idea how we're going to be able to solve this. I've been doing reporting projects for a long time, and I don't have a clue right now how I could architect this. And by the way, it's the most complex roll-up I've ever seen in my entire career. So... <laughs> The point of that story is probably twofold. Number one, the vendor didn't ask the right questions. The tech team, in this case, did not ask the right questions. 
But in fairness to them, they didn't know the right questions to ask. The other side of the equation is that the business did not tell the tech team everything he knew. So there were all kinds of things that he wasn't sharing. He wasn't doing it on purpose. He wasn't doing it maliciously. And that's also kind of an epiphany that led me to where I am today, because I couldn't figure out how a guy who was as diligent, as meticulous, whose attention to detail was as great as this guy's was. And this guy actually went on to become Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year for North America. So, I mean, I'm highlighting the mistake of one of the sharpest people I know, not somebody who's a dummy. And my logic was, well, if it could happen to him, it could happen to anybody. So for me, that kind of began the quest of trying to figure out why is this stuff going on? Because there was something that was completely alien to the idea that human beings are in control of their minds. So I started doing a lot of research on psychologists, the positive psychology, positive systems movement, and a lot of the research on what's been done in neuroscience over the course of the last 20 years in particular. We used to have one image in our mind, no pun intended, of the way that our brain worked. We used to have a series of theories that said that the brain works in a certain way. And the old adage was that we were soul-centric or soul-governed or spirit-governed. That's not a religious perspective. What it means is that the ghost in the machine of the human could drive the machine, if that makes any sense. So we were masters of our own domain. Let's put it that way, to to quote Jerry Seinfeld. (laughs) But obviously in a different context, right? But what we started to realize about 20 years ago is that's not at all the case. Human beings are largely controlled by an unconscious autopilot that we don't even know we have. So we have a second operating system that's going on that's competing for control all the time and making all kinds of split decisions in the background that we aren't even aware of the fact that it's making. There's about seven of these behaviors that are particularly germane, but I'm not going to go through all of them now. But let me just focus on the beginning and the end of it. So the beginning is this autopilot exists and it exerts control in places that we don't know it's exerting control. We're not aware of when it's going on. The end of it, the punchline in all this is that we had up until even 25 years ago, we had this image of the human brain as something that was static. The idea is the neurons that you were born with, the gray matter that you were born with was all you were ever going to get. That if something was lost to illness or injury, you weren't going to be able to come back from it. You weren't going to be able to recover. We didn't think that you grew neurons or synapses as an adult. We now know that that's completely false, which is remarkable. Another thing that's remarkable about that is that our brain has got this internal controller, this ghost in the machine, the second system, this unconscious autopilot was actually referred to, the term was coined in 2002 by a Harvard psychologist named Daniel Winger. He called it the adaptive unconscious and proposed this idea of the autopilot. So what that autopilot is doing is it's watching us all the time. So think of it as in a computer context, it's watching our keystrokes, watching what we do. So the first time you learn how to do anything, whether that's programming a computer or playing the piano, You have to think it through. You have to manually work at it, right? So you have to logically lay out the steps, say, my fingers go here at this time and they move in this way. Well, that autopilot is watching that behavior in the background. And it sounds so far-fetched even when I describe it, it's surreal, but this is actually what's going on with us. When it's watching that, it's recognizing two things. First, the human mind is a computer that runs on electricity. We tend not to think of it that way. But when I have to think about everything manually, when I have to process it all manually, I'm using two precious resources. 
I'm using a lot of electrical energy and I'm using a lot of processing capacity. So power and processing are both being maximized. This unconscious autopilot, this adaptive unconscious is watching what we're doing and realizing I can make Dave more efficient. So the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to hard code solutions in another part of his brain. So think of it like creating a system on a chip. It's a special purpose neural pathway specifically geared towards dealing with this one issue. So as we get better at doing something, we build up these systems on a chip in our mind, these special purpose processing units. Now, what's cool about it is that upside for this is that we're able to transfer the stuff from doing it manually to being able to do it automatically. So we can actually move it from the conscious part of our brain to the unconscious part of our brain, which has got huge payoffs because we don't use anywhere near as much electricity as we're used to. <laughs> the lazy human brain goes into effect. <laughs> and these shortcuts, create shortcuts. There's a wonderful book by Daniel Kahneman that if anybody out here hasn't read it, you need to. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. It came out in 2011. And he makes a quote in there. He says, laziness is built deep into the human psyche. <laughs> Absolutely. We are wildly lazy people, but we're doing it for a specific purpose, right? We're optimizing our utilization of resources. So to finish off that part of that very long-winded story, and sorry for that, but when the stuff transfers over from the conscious to the unconscious, it allows us to act instinctively. We don't have to think it through. We just respond automatically. We use a lot less power. We use a lot less processing capacity. But then there's also the downside because that autopilot has been cleaning up after us. So you can think of it this way. The knowledge, the logic that you used to keep in RAM now no longer needs to occupy RAM. So we flush our RAM cache and we move everything to long-term storage. It's almost like you put some it more than paper. others. <laughs> yeah, some more than others. I can make a lot of jokes about this. <laughs> Chime in. I mean, it's actually hysterical when you think about it. But there's a punchline to this deal that the more expertise that you acquire, the less able you are to articulate that which you know or why you know it. So here's the irony of this entire thing. And this is the punchline. This is why it's germane for all those CIOs out there who are listening to this. And now you guys can pay attention because all the rest of this stuff is just foreplay. <laughs> Everyone listen up now. This is the part you want to pay attention to, right? The reality is, think about who we turn to first in a business setting when we're trying to automate a new process. The subject matter experts, right? It's the knee-jerk response. I need to talk to the SMEs. I need to talk to the people that understand this process inside out, backwards and forwards. Great. Makes perfect sense. Assuming those people could remember what they know, which they can't. So the irony is the people you're turning to looking for salvation, your last great hope for success in these projects are the very people that are the most physically handicapped from being able to tell you what they know. <laughs> they don't know why they know it. They don't know how they know it. They just know it. Now, to show you how fast this whole field is moving, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blank in 2005, where he opens the book talking about these behaviors. So psychologists were becoming aware of the fact that things like this were happening, but we didn't know why it was happening. And it's only in the last couple of years with neural imaging and a whole host of other techniques that we're able to understand what's going on. And it's a physical impediment that accrues to your detriment as you become a greater expert. So I was joking with somebody the other day, putting this in perspective. It's like, as a guy, you spend your entire life looking for the girl of your dreams, right? So you finally find the perfect woman for you. You get married and you discover that on your honeymoon that she's a serial killer. Everything went great right up until that last moment. 
<laughs> yeah, sure. Mike Myers did this movie a long time ago called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And that's pretty much what you're getting into when you get in bed with a subject matter expert. Yeah, the more expert you become, the worse communicator you are. <laughs> that's it. That's a great summation of it. So that's a big piece of the reason that the IT team trusts the business to tell them everything they know, assuming that the business is capable of telling them everything they know, which they're not. And the business forgets that they know these things, so they forget to share it. So it's this negative feedback loop that leads to a death spiral. So talking about the beginning of that journey, before we get into essentially a tough situation of no one knows what the hell each other wants... <laughs> Which continues a quick tangent on this, because this goes into my client relationships sometimes as well, where it's like, there's these massive business assumptions. And then we're almost, we feel like we're being childish because we have to list all these things out in our contracts just to make sure we remind the client what they actually agreed to. <laughs> Isn't that the damnedest thing? People forget. Yeah. And it's just like this whole concept of translating IT into business and business into IT. I tell you, I mean, that's how I got started into the private sector in IT procurement is because I was essentially fulfilling that role and realized that I enjoyed it. But boy, I tell you, the more experience I get in different industries and just hearing you talk and other experts talk, it's a skill set that continues to be in demand today, doesn't it? This whole concept of business partnering. So I am curious. What are the tools, techniques, techniques, methods, et cetera, et cetera, that people can deploy at the onset of projects to ensure the parties are properly communicating, both understanding what they're individually accountable for, as well as responsible for? So my head automatically goes to a RACI or a DACI, depending on whichever acronym you use, right? But can you maybe talk about that a bit? I can. And let me preamble it with two illustrations, one of which is very impressive, the other which I never thought I would use. We used to have a joke about Pricewaterhouse. We used to refer to it as the ground zero theory. And the basic idea was it didn't matter where you went to, you just needed to get the hell away from ground zero. Pretty much like nuclear war. Didn't matter which direction you travel, you just needed to get away from ground zero. The big eight is like that for a lot of people, or the big four is like that for a lot of people. You just need to get away after a certain amount of time. But there was an enormously valuable skill that I acquired there, too much to their credit, I didn't appreciate. So generally accepted auditing standards mandate that when you're doing an audit, that you construct a checklist. It's in the accountant's parlance is an audit program. And that audit program is a step-by-step, blow-by-blow instruction sheet that tells a kid right out of college who's never done this before in their life, exactly what they need to do, blow by blow, to audit a particular issue, whether it's cash or fixed assets. Those checklists, those programs are very elaborate, but they're very useful because you do ensure that every step along the way was ticked. Now, another illustration that kind of ties into this is, and I didn't realize this for a long time, but I grew up in Orange County, Southern California, at a time when Apollo, the moonshot was in full bloom. The third stage of the Saturn V was built about a mile from my high school. The second stage was built two and a half miles from my high school. Half the kids' fathers on my street were engineers working on the moonshot. And one of the things that I got a glimpse at then was the fact that we did the moonshot based on checklist. There's a wonderful story about it. There's this illustration. When I describe it, everybody hopefully will go to Google, pull up this picture, and they'll be able to see what we're talking about. 
So there's this photo of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon, and he's got his left arm cocked up at this weird angle. And it's an incredibly famous shot. Everybody's seen it. But you can't figure out, why is the guy holding his arm at this bizarre angle? Well, what he was doing is he was referring to the checklist on his sleeve. So every moonwalker literally had a step-by-step checklist on their gloves, telling them what they needed to do when. Now, what's interesting about that, and there's actually multiple things interesting about it, the first is the fact is that checklist was a culmination of 100,000 other checklists that were developed by half a million other people over the preceding eight years to get us to the moon. The punchline on that whole exercise is the most high-tech, expensive, risky, innovative tech project in history was pulled off on time, on budget, and met every objective using checklist. So that's one thing to make note of. I have to point out the irony that certain ERP projects have taken longer and delivered less. So every time, every time you get some software engineer, and again, I'm picking on software engineers, but I've been a software engineer, so I'm pointing this gun at myself. Every time somebody says, oh, well, we don't need to do that. Well, really? You know, this is what success looks like, and this is how you get there. You might as well take the lead from people who know how to do it. Now, a couple other points around this. So backstory on Buzz Aldrin. The guy's a PhD from MIT. He's not exactly stupid. In fact, he was regarded as one of the brightest people in NASA. He was the guy that figured out how to rendezvous in space. His nickname in the astronaut corps was Dr. Rendezvous. If a guy that bright needs a checklist, what does that tell you about people that don't have a PhD from MIT? (laughs) That's right. One of the things I try and hammer home when I'm talking to people is that really bright people acknowledge physical constraints and human limitations, and they figure out a way around them. Idiots pretend that they don't have any limitations and stampede like lemmings off of a cliff because it's just so much more fun to make it up as we go along. (laughs) Heaven forbid we need process. (laughs) Oh, oh God. Nothing could be worse. Yeah. I I just got this ERP thing. Before we move on, I got to throw in some one of my pet peeves. Talking about the big four, we got to bash the big four a little bit more in here. Oh, Les, I love that. I'll tell you, just down the street here, I got to be careful what I say here, but just down the street, there's a the largest privately held agriculture company in the world. One of the largest private companies in the world, if you took out the Saudi oil companies. I won't name the name here because I know my legal team probably won't want me to, but they could ascertain. But you kind of bracketed the parameters for this. But yeah. I kind of bracketed the parameters. <laughs> They're on a 15-year deployment plan for their SAP implementation. And I'll tell you what, when I first walked in the doors there, I said, so this is how the big four operates. A school bus of college kids that have no freaking clue what they're doing <laughs> whatsoever, <laughs> that are completely incapable of doing the job unloaded onto the stairs of the organization that said, here, implement an ERP. <laughs> totally making it up as they go along with no checklist or anything. Knock yourself out. <laughs> uh, to the tune of this company was spending about a million dollars a day. Uh, so yeah, maybe a checklist is important. <laughs> the unsaid mantras of the partners that are running those engagements is, if we're breathing, we're billing. <laughs> That's right. Let our clients train our employees. Exactly. That's the better route. It's much cheaper that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
It happens all the time in every industry. Oh, <laughs> and we let them do it. Yes. I think it kind of goes back to the old, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. That's what it is. It's so that CIOs, yes, I'm going to blast some CIOs, save face because they can say, oh, one of the big four screwed it up. It wasn't my bad decision. Right. Your first bad decision was hiring that individual in the first place. You're not pinning them down. Now, I've got to be careful. So <laughs> when one of the most alarming episodes that I witnessed firsthand with that was now 25 years ago a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away on the East Coast when I was working on this merger of MetLife and Travelers. And a certain one of the now remaining final four was in on that engagement. And they had what the CFO of MetLife's healthcare division at that point used to refer to as masses of asses. <laughs> <They just show up. laughs> Butts and seats. <laughs> Masses of asses just showed up like, you know, the school bus full of newly minted graduates that, here, go do this ERP implementation. They had two guys. I'm not making this up. They had two guys that were figuring out a Novell network, trying to put in place a Novell network for that team of consultants. And these guys spent about eight months on it. Eight months to put in place a Novell network, something that a reasonably competent individual should have been able to stand up in the span of about 24 hours, <laughs> assuming they hadn't been drinking. Right. So yeah, that sort of stuff happens all the time. And it's not that the people at the top are dumb because they're not, and it would be a real disservice to suggest that they are. It's not that the people doing the work are dumb because they're not. I mean, if you get hired by one of those places, you're probably reasonably competent. I mean, if you stay there for a few years, you're certainly reasonably competent because they would have flushed you out before that if you weren't. But I think the problem that we've gotten into is I'm going to pick on Agile for a moment. And I don't mean Please to, do. well, I don't mean to be picking on it per se because I'm PMP certified. I'm also a certified scrum master. I have used Agile very successfully in the right circumstances. I'm a big proponent of it. It's absolutely wonderful, but people lose sight of how and why Agile was originally developed. You got to have the foundation. Yeah. Would be nice. I'm sorry right? to put words in your mouth, but this is a pet peeve of mine as well. So, yeah. So it was about 17 guys, software engineers, who got together at Park City for scotch and skiing. But they were having a real problem because when the Agile Manifesto was created, they were finding themselves going into these brand new projects where no existing foundation existed. Right, They were having to clap their hands and produce a bowl of flowers out of thin air. There was no process to map. There was no pre-existing system to follow. They were making it up as they went along. And under those circumstances, Agile makes a ton of sense. There's no better way to do it. So for businesses like Amazon, Netflix, you'd be crazy if you operated any other way because you're Zoom, another great illustration. You're inventing mm -hmm. the future on a daily basis and you're testing out with your clients. But now having said that, here's where I think our industry's gone afoul. One of the more respected analysts, they came back and they did an assessment between what percentage of all IT projects are basically automating existing systems and what percentage are brand new where you're inventing the future. And that ratio is about four to one. So 80% of our work is in a known environment with a known system with a known objective. 20% of our work is in an environment where we're having to make it up as we go along, where nobody knows, where we're testing. The model for Agile is experimentation and invention. 
the model for those infrastructure projects, those established projects for which Agile is not appropriate, is construction, where you're trying to rapidly replicate a known system. So what's wound up happening is we've got sort of the tail wagging the dock. I think everybody wants to... Now I'm going to riff on my profession again. We love the next bright, shiny object. IT professionals always want to stay on the cutting, bleeding edge of technology. They want to know what's out there, what's coming, what's next. They want to stay marketable. They want to learn. They're curious. And you know you can't blame them for any of that. But it causes a lot of people that are not in Silicon Valley to want to pretend like they are. And when that happens, I think we can go south. And I think that's one of the reasons so many of these projects have failed is because we're trying to apply Agile to a place where Agile really doesn't belong. We're trying to cut a lot of corners. I was given a talk a couple of months ago. One guy, I wish I had the guy's name, but I cracked up when he said, he said, you know, you wouldn't use Agile to build a swimming pool. (laughs) Pretty good point. Yeah, you'd have to be out of your mind to do that. But yet people try. Yeah, it's the latest buzzword that I'm still seeing in industries. The newest thing, you know, manufacturing, ag, a little bit of the laggards, right? Mm -hmm. Agile's still the newest thing, IT development. So yeah, it's interesting. Well, let's shift gears just real quick. I wanted to ask you one of our two standard questions that we ask all of our guests here. The first being, you know, if you could talk to yourself at the beginning of your career, what advice would you give yourself? And just as a reminder, everyone, the reason I ask that question to our guests is because we have a lot of guests that have reached out indicating that they're at the beginning of their journey and they really appreciate this medium to hear from different thought leaders and just their own perspectives on kind of what that guiding star should be. So I want to ask you that, Dave. So I actually know the answer to that question. I had an uncle tell it to me. So right after I graduated from college, and I didn't appreciate the magnitude or the depth of what he was conveying when he said it. But he was the CEO of a very large financial institution that wound up getting sold eventually to Citicorp. And he was telling me the story about this one teller that had worked for the company for years, but he had fairly early on in his CEO tenure, he was visiting this branch and he saw this teller, somebody that he'd known through decades. And she said, oh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm leaving. This is my last day. And he was kind of puzzled. He said, well, what happened? Why? You've still got years before retirement. Why on earth are you leaving? He said, well, we've been robbed twice at gunpoint, and I just can't take the stress anymore. And I've tried to put in for a transfer to another location, but HR won't do it. So my uncle said, sit here. I'll be right back. So went to an office, got on the phone, called the HR department, said, you're going to move her, and you're going to move her now. So find a place, get back to me in 10 minutes. So in 10 minutes, he had her reassigned to some place that was a significantly safer branch, much closer to her home. And he was telling me the story about how she wound up breaking down in tears on his chest saying, thank you so much. This is what this company always promised to be, but I thought we'd lost it. So I really appreciate you doing this. And his point to me, and he was getting a little emotional as he shared it with me, he said, if you ever forget that business is all about people, your life will not be worth living. So that would be my advice to myself, but let me unpack that a little bit. I was guilty of something early on in my career that I've seen an awful lot of other people do. So I am by no means alone, but we used to joke about being binary bigots, which basically interpreted meant that we thought the technology was everything. And it was a be all and end all. And we were in love with our technology and we thought everybody else should be in love with it as well. And we don't have time to unpack all the reasons that I finally woke up and realized that that's not the case. Well, we're kind of coming full circle in this conversation. Understanding the human need in IT is your principal focus. And 
I think from a business perspective and from a career development perspective, I wish I would have appreciated that human need and the complexities of how people think. There's a tendency among the business people to point fingers at the IT staff and say they're stupid, they're lazy, they're incompetent, they're malicious, they're egotistical. They think they know everything there is to know and they don't know anything. So there's a lot of sort of negative projections that get put on the IT department when things don't go right. And the IT department has their own form of that negative projection where they sometimes cast the same dispersions back at the business. But there's an off-quoted statement that I've heard more times than I wish I'd heard. And every time I've mentioned it to somebody else, they tend to laugh because they've heard it too. There's usually somebody in the IT department that says, I know more about what the business needs than they do. Mm -hmm. And I think there's two problems. Almost every one of them. Almost every one of them. I know more about what the business needs than they do. And what they are failing to appreciate is that that single statement is both conveying their incredible arrogance and their total ignorance of how humans actually work. If you go back to the idea that the greater the expertise, the more limited they are in their ability to tell you what they know, what the SMEs, the people that the IT team, that that arrogant individual is railing against, aren't grasping is that that person does in fact know their process infinitely better than the IT team can ever know it. And to presuppose that you, after spending three minutes, three hours, three weeks learning about that process, understand it better than somebody that's been doing it for 30 years or three years or whatever the number is, is absurd. So you're way off base with that one. But the other thing where you're off base is that you're missing the fact that you don't know how to ask the questions to draw them out. Right. Where your failure lies is... When you start believing that you know everything there is to know, you close the door on the possibilities of all the things that you might learn. That's bordering on profound, so I'll need to remember that at some point. But you need to keep those doors open. You need to be aware of the fact that where you need to lead with is with questioning. You need to be talking to people. You need to be drawing them out. You need to be patient. You need to appreciate the fact that that brilliance is in there. You just need to wait for it to present itself. And it won't always present itself immediately, but it will over time. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. That's great insight. I think everybody would benefit, IT or not, but I think especially IT, maybe especially in the development roles versus business, the ones that don't speak business as much as IT, right, would behoove having some basic training in what I call investigative interviewing, right? Mm-hmm. In which you know, I was trained to do in my past life. But in the business sense, it's the same thing, knowing how to ask the right questions to really get the true answer versus rushing to judgment, right? Right. Yeah. I don't think our business schools have done a very good job of explaining to students, whether those are undergraduates or MBAs, sort of the simple elegance of what business execution is really all about. Yeah. And you know, this is another area that's just been kind of a career infatuation. Execution is not a one-off linear exercise. It's a cycle. It is always a cycle that repeats and refines as time goes on. Business is very simple and people just get lost in all those superfluous stuff. This is about doing something. It's about moving a ball from point A to point B as fast and efficiently as you possibly can to hopefully generate some profits. Now, you can string together a lot of those sub-processes to create one larger macro process. But fundamentally, that's all it is. So the cycle has got four quarters, 12 steps. They are always present in the execution of every business process. 
they always occur in exactly the same sequence. And it makes it wonderful for creating a checklist around. The first quarter is the place where you always do the work. You always move the ball from point A to point B. There's a way of documenting the elements along that step. The second piece of it is when work is done, the second quarter is it's always managed. If you've got more than one person doing it, even if you're managing yourself, you're still structuring and organizing your work in some defined way. The third component of it is where you assess what you've done. And I've spent so much of my time doing advanced analytics, AI work, and a lot of reporting, and I'm perpetually stunned by how few business people appreciate the fact that your reporting strategy is, in bold caps, is your management communication strategy. What you report on, what you choose to report on, what you choose to tell your people to focus on are the places where they're going to look within your organization. And the things that you ignore, they're going to ignore. Kind of harkens back to Edward Deming, you know, you'll get what you measure. Right. I'm paraphrasing Deming. That's good feedback. Yeah, but that's the basic idea. What people also tend to get lost in the weeds and they forget the simplicity of that assessment process. So look at the pipeline, right, of moving the ball from point A to point B. You can think of it like a pipeline. There are only three fundamental metrics that you could ever have on any business process. Now, there are thousands, maybe millions of derivations on these themes. But the three metrics are these. You look at how fast it transits the process. So how fast does it move through? How much is going through it? And how efficiently is it transiting? Volume, velocity, and efficiency. But we tend not to see that. Again, getting lost in the forest and the, you can't see the forest of the trees. Yep. The fourth step of that cycle is where you were fine based upon what you've done before where you actually triage your organization. You look at each of those metrics and say, okay, for each one of those, what's okay, what's not okay? So where's the dividing line between adequate and inadequate performance? There's only so much time that you've got as a manager. You can't be every place at once. So you need to be the places where you most need to be when you need to be there. So the first step in the triage is, okay, who can live till tomorrow without intervention and who needs immediate intervention right now? Once you figured that out, Once you've drawn the line in your head as to where that divide comes, you just need to sort the participants who falls into each camp. And then once you've done that, your final step is to ask, okay, how much does it cost? Because if you've got one guy that's a $10 million problem and you've got 90 that represent a grand total of a $1,000 issue, screw the 90. You want to focus on the guy that's the $10 million issue because if you solved one-tenth of his issue, you would have accomplished more than if you would have solved the problem for the first 90. So that idea of organizational triage is kind of the last step. And this isn't taught in schools. Nassim Taleb, in many of his books, talks about the value of practical tinkering and how things are discovered over time just by working them through. There's a wonderful book by Atul Gawande called The Checklist Manifesto. I don't know if you've ever heard of it or read it. I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Terrific book. It's another deal that I would strongly recommend everybody on this call read. He gives an illustration of how checklists entered aviation. And it was in 1935 when Boeing rolled out the B-17, which at that time was the most sophisticated thing in the air. And it was so much more advanced than the biplanes people had been flying that the first several test crews all crashed and died. So the plane that basically won World War II for us in Europe, they couldn't get it off the ground. So when the engineers from Boeing would go in and do postmortems at the end, they were realizing all these dumb little things that people had forgotten. Like they hadn't set the flaps, they hadn't set the turbo chargers to come on. Just stupid stuff. They made up a checklist and lo and behold, that problem was solved. So 
the methodology that I'm talking about, this cycle is a result of practical tinkering, but it's a practical tinkering that comes at it from an accounting perspective, an engineering perspective, a psychological perspective, and a systems theorist perspective, which not a lot of people have. Yeah, using your analogy of the pilot and the checklist, I'll tell you, you know, being an avid traveler myself, I have great comfort knowing that there's a standardized pre-flight checklist, which, you know, pilots can recite in their sleep, which gives that level of consistency and trust. And to your point, can transpire into other areas of our daily lives, especially our personal lives. Absolutely. Atul Gwandi is a surgeon from Harvard. He's at Mass General. And the guy wrote the book because he'd been invited by the World Health Organization to do a study on what they needed to do to be able to minimize the post-surgical complications. And so they came up with this idea of a checklist, and they rolled it out in six different environments, two extremely poor, two sort of mid-tier, and two high-end. And these were places, these were hospitals all around the world. And what they found was just by putting a checklist in place and giving it to the charge nurse of the surgical suite, not the physician to run it, but somebody independent of the physician to cross-check them. They were able to cut their mortality and morbidity statistics by half. And that's all they did. They, they just put a checklist in place. And you know the tie-in from that is, and I'm sure you've seen these stats, that if the healthcare providers in America were like airlines, we'd be crashing the equivalent of two 747s a day, just for the hell of it. We'd be killing two 747s of people every single day due to stupid mistakes. And we tolerate that. And we tolerate that same sort of thing in IT. Yeah, don't get me started on my soapbox regarding how screwed up the healthcare industry is. But Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. Let me ask you my second and final standard question for season two, which is, tell me your best, worst boss story ever. And I have a feeling you've got some good, bad boss stories, <laughs> which led you to your current roles in entrepreneurship, let's call it, and or advising. Tell me a time where it fueled your fire, perhaps. There, there's been a couple of special moments along the way. Um, <laughs> special moments. I can already tell it's going to be good. Yeah. There is one that stands out. It was a CFO that I was working for. And I've got to be careful with this. He experienced certain challenges with authenticity and truthfulness. Let's put it that way. Core elements of a good CFO. <laughs> Core elements. He had... <laughs> The truth was not a hard and fast construct for him. It was something that was malleable. There was a certain ethical nimbleness to his thinking. Let's put it that way. He made a comment to me one time, which really stood out. He said, this is an exact quote, never forgot it. I never believe in becoming friends with the people that work for me in case I have to F them over. <laughs> oh, jeez. Direct quote. How about that direct? Yeah. Oh, wow. And you know, my knee-jerk response is, gee, thanks so much for sharing that with me as I yeah. report to you. <laughs> thanks for the heads up. <laughs> yeah. You've just told me an enormous amount about what I need to be cognizant of with you. So, you know, thanks so much oh, for wow. that. So, yeah. So, that was, uh, that was a cherished moment. Yeah. How about tiptoeing around that conversation every single time ever again? Yeah. Oh, that's bad. Just a little something to keep in mind. Don't want to become friends with you because I may have to f you over at some point, and I don't want to feel bad about that. Yeah, <laughs> okay. appreciate the transparency. That's what I'm <laughs> like yeah, I'll make a T-shirt with a target on my back to make it easy for you. <laughs> Stab here. Oh, God. <laughs> so you want the flip side of this? Yeah, it came from the guy. That became the first chief learning officer in the world at GE. The guy's name is Steve Kerr. 
And there were two things that he said to me over the years that were, I think, particularly valuable. And uh, Steve, if you ever wind up hearing this, I still remember it and still thank you for it. He would start with this little weird illustration that people couldn't quite figure out where he was coming from. And he said, I don't play a lot of golf. The reality was, I don't think he ever played any golf at all. But he said, I know that if I'm about to putt, if I look down and see that there's a stick between my ball and the cup, if I bend over and move the stick, I'm going to have a much greater probability of sinking the putt. Makes perfect sense. Nobody can argue with that. He said, so if you're running an organization and you've got 100 people all doing relatively the same type of job, one of them, by definition, will figure out how to move the stick faster than the other 99. Your job as a manager is to figure out, find that guy or gal as fast as you possibly can and simply ask them what they did. When you figured out how they moved the stick, you're going to share that information with the other 99 people. And guess what's going to happen? The tide of performance is going to significantly rise. And when you've stabilized everybody at that new level, then you're going to start looking around for the next stick. Now, when viewed from that context, that's all continuous learning is. That's all continuous improvement is. And that's all GE did for 20 years under Jack Welch. And it was wildly successful. So that was one takeaway that always stuck with me. And there was another one that several years later, he and I were talking after 9-11. And I was showing him some of the software and the things that we had done at kind of at the end of it. He jokingly made the comment. So, well, it's nice to see that you've been able to apply your education. So that was kind of gratifying. But the statement he made, he was talking about something that has been documented, not extensively, but there's enough reports about this from independent sources that confirms it. He was living across the street from the World Trade Center when the towers came down in 9-11. He didn't happen to be home at the moment. He was down in Florida and he was flying back that day. So he was one of the planes that got down and was able to get back to his place after the carnage hit. But their building was very badly damaged. And that night, the occupants of the building were let in to try and get you know whatever belongings they could get their hands on and clear out before these places were condemned. And he was complaining about the fact that the firefighters, the very people that had been the heroes of the morning, were methodically ransacking these high-end apartments, like carrying off scotch, crystal, basically anything they could get. And the residents were complaining to the police, and the police were just turning a blind eye to it. So like I said, I've seen this written up other places. I don't have firsthand evidence of it, but you know, he was somebody who was there who watched it happen. His point to me in the context of this, he said, never forget that human beings are complex. The hero of the morning can be the thief of the afternoon. The presence of something that you don't like doesn't negate the existence of something that you do. Humans, we tend to be binary. We tend to look at people and if they give us what we want, there's an aura a halo effect that we ascribe to them. But if they do something we don't like, we tend to dump all over them. And we can't. We need to have a much more balanced perspective. We need to appreciate the fact that just because you don't agree with a guy on one thing doesn't mean that he isn't right on something else. And that kind of goes back to the advice that I had that I wish I would have listened to a lot earlier. Yeah, that's good direction for everybody, not just people at the beginning of their careers. Right. And it's fairly timely for America at the moment. It is fairly timely. Yes. Well, this has been a great discussion, Dave. If people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they be able to most effectively do that? Uh, go to the website. It's about what.com. I could give out my email or phone number. I don't know. You know what's the... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Do it. You know, call me on my cell. If I can help you, let me know. It's 949-235-6283. Or contact me via email at dave at it's about what.com. Love to help. You know, just 
One other aside kind of quick on this deal is that, as I mentioned, I'm a PMP. One thing that PMI talks about incessantly is the idea. And when I was getting into that, I actually thought that this was really terrific. They're always talking about the fact that we need to document lessons learned. But yet in the very next breath, they confess, but nobody ever does it. So like, yeah, we need to document lessons learned. And we know nobody ever does it. Well, the crew that's in It's About What, this whole group is a bunch of people, fairly senior leaders that have done this for a long time. Everything that we're working on is a distillation of 30 plus years of lessons learned. We're just trying to pass it on so that other people don't make the same incredibly stupid mistakes that we once did. (laughs) A culmination of after action reports all in the heads of the people. That's it. Exactly. It's nothing more than a series of after action reports of like, hey, what did we learn from making all of these mistakes? It's funny you mentioned that the private sector is awful at not. I mean, some companies do like the good, difficult, different. But then you know what? It goes on some one page slide so they can show in their slide that will be totally forgotten about a month later. It's so true. I'm kind of having this epiphany right now as you just said that, because I'll tell you, as screwed up as a lot of government operations are, (laughs) the one good thing that military and federal law enforcement, I can't say state and local, I just, I don't know, but federal law enforcement, military, man, they're good at after action reports. Oh, yeah. And boy, if you screw up that same way again, you are toast. Right. It's okay to screw up the first time, unless you absolutely should have known this. But yeah, Yeah. they learn from their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, from real life mistakes of, of life and death as well, which obviously is a little bit different context than the business sector, but still the principles should apply. So you make a really good point. One of the great advantages of my career, another lucky break was I wound up working with two different three-star admirals for about 20 years and learned an awful lot about how to operate in such a way that allows you to be efficient, how to learn from what you've done in the past. It's interesting going back to the story about Steve Kerr. He made a comment to me one time when we were talking about GE, all their top leadership had been invited down to DARPA and the Pentagon to discuss strategy and what made GE as successful as it was. And at one point towards the end of the session, the military asked Welch, I guess, what do you think is the secret to your success? Why do you think that you've been as successful as you have? And he said, well, I think it's the mantra that we always want to dominate our markets and be number one or number two in every marketplace. And we only get into businesses where we can do that. And they came back and said, we don't think that's it at all. We disagree with you. We think what you do that makes you truly unique is that the way you learn from the past, the way that you methodically prosecute this continuous improvement, that's what sets you apart. And I've talked to a number of people since at fairly large organizations, and it's a little bit sad, but there's probably only 100 businesses in the United States that have got that similar sort of discipline. I mean, they're out there, but an awful lot of people Uh, particularly in public companies, have gotten far more enamored in the last 10 years with financial engineering than they have with operational efficiency. And like every cycle, that will change. We just don't know when it's going to happen. Whatever's on the plate of Congress this week. (laughs) That was our running joke. (laughs) Well, thank you, Dave, for your time. No, thank you. This has been fun. We simply need to do this again. We should do it again. I know uh, our audience will take a lot of value out of this one. So we'll put all those show notes with your links and some information about your company, your contact information, et cetera, in the show notes for all those people that want to learn a little bit more about Dave. In addition to obviously, you can just go to his website. So thank you, Dave. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dan. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's conversation, please share this podcast with one person you think who would enjoy it. For show notes, 
episodes, and more, please visit thenegotiator.guru. Look forward to hearing from everyone soon. Thanks, and we'll talk to you soon.